Thank you for joining us for our second follow-up Q&A and sixth overall episode of our series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage with Professor David Engelsmer. If you missed any of the previous episodes, check back on each of the Friday podcasts in January. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any questions or comments that you might have, then feel free to do so at hoperwc at gmail.com and we will do our best to get a response to you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome to Hope PR Ministry, a podcast produced by Hope PRC, Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. Thank you for joining us again today. It is, I believe, the sixth time that we've been recording. Uh, Jeff and Prof Engelsma once again joining me today. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Josh. Hello, Prof. So we're picking up again from where we left off last time. Uh, we covered a few questions on the subject of divorce and remarriage. And I believe the plan for us this time is to go into some of the more general questions with regards to marriage. My name is Josh Harris, and as I said, I'm also joined by my co-host, Jeff Kalsbeek. Jeff, why don't you give us a little bit of a, uh, a background, or at least a, a little bit of a reminder as to what we, we talked about a little bit last time. Okay. A couple takeaways from uh, what we discussed last time. Thanks for the listeners for submitting their questions and helping us clarify a few things. But number one, first takeaway was that there's two different senses in which marriage is lawful in God's eye. Number one, it's a legally constituted marriage established by the state. And number two, there's a marriage that's in conformity to his institution of marriage. So a legal marriage might also be a sinful marriage. And of course, the gravity of that, it could be such that it's under God's wrath, a sinful marriage, even if it's legal in the eyes of the state. And then number two, what's our responsibility? We're to witness and to defend the truth of marriage as a reflection of God's unbreakable bond with us, his bride, and also to admonish and warn those who don't believe this without being rash about their eternal destination, leaving that judgment up to God. In this episode, like you said, we're going to have some questions to do with specific decisions of the PRC and possible future issues that are going to be coming up in today's world. So with that, I think we could get started on the questions that were submitted. Yeah, I think so. And and if anyone is curious about a little bit more about what Jeff has said here, please feel free to go back and listen to the previous episodes. I believe when we do publish these, we will have posted the initial interviews which we had with Professor Engelsma. There is a pamphlet. It's called Until Death Us Do Part. It is a compilation of a number of articles that Professor Engelsma wrote in the Standard Bear through the years regarding marriage. And if any of our listeners would like a copy, they can contact us. And you can get a copy of this. We'll send you uh, one of these pamphlets. Yeah, let's get into the first question if we're ready. The first question, I think it would benefit the church to have a solid biblical definition of what creates a marriage in the eyes of the Lord, instead of trying to address them reactively. Is there such a definition that can be established? That's a good question with which to begin. Earlier in these proceedings, I have offered a definition of marriage, biblically based, in the light of which all the practical issues and questions must be judged. And I'll repeat that definition of my own making, but based solidly and irrefutably, I believe, upon the biblical teaching. Marriage is the divine ordinance for the human race, consisting of a uniquely intimate relationship sealed by some authority 
between one man, male, and one woman, female, they become one flesh for the life of the two, which relationship God instituted as the outstanding symbol of the covenant union between Jesus Christ and his church. The first part of this definition obviously concerns the earthly institution of marriage. The second part of this definition, which bears heavily upon the earthly ordinance, has to do with the significance of earthly marriage with regard to the union of Christ and the church. Both elements of that definition are basic for answering all the practical questions about marriage that inevitably arise concerning this ordinance of the human race. That's my definition, and I believe that's a definition that will stand the scrutiny of anyone and everyone in light of of the Bible. Okay, what do you think the questioner has in mind here? It almost seems like he's looking into the future, and the church that maintains this truth of marriage is going to have to face some new issues, and he wants us to not be reactive, but to have things established. What the questioner may have in mind is difficult to come to an understanding of, but the question itself indicates that when the church marries two persons, two confessing believers, the church must impress upon the newly married couple or the couple that intends marriage as to what marriage is, the institution into which they are entering. And if either of the two has reservations about the fundamental nature of marriage in light of this definition, they ought not to be married and the church ought not to marry them. In the second place, all the practical problems regarding marriage have to be answered in the light of this biblically-based definition. There are hard practical circumstances and incidents in marriage. Every pastor is well aware of that, and the church becomes aware of that too. And some of those practical questions and issues are extremely difficult to sort out. I think I mentioned before in these interviews that Augustine, long ago, a pastor as well as a theologian, said that more problems arise out of marital circumstances than a wise man can answer. But the effort to answer these practical problems and incidents, in light of the definition, pastors and churches must answer the problems that arise and solve the difficulties and answer the questions that married people have. With regard to all the special circumstances, extremely difficult in some cases, the church must draw the couple back, and the pastor himself who's offering advice must draw himself back to this definition. Marriage is a divine institution consisting of a uniquely intimate relationship between one man and one woman for the life of the two. That principle, that part of the definition must never be compromised. And if there seems to be to the pastor two possible answers to a problem in marriage, he must always choose the answer that accords with this part of the definition. He must never compromise this part of the definition. A divine ordinance, that means the church may not and really cannot change the nature of marriage. I've faced this many times in my ministry. Your answer is hard. Your answer is difficult. Your answer means hardship for the married couple. And my response inevitably is, I didn't make the ordinance. It's not a human ordinance that I may change according to the whims, not only, but the seeming hard circumstances of the married couple. All that I can do and what I am compelled to do is to answer the question in light of this truth, which God has instituted. It's a divine ordinance, and the divine ordinance determines all the practical answers to the practical problems. It's a divine ordinance, and God made it for the life of the two. 
The two who are originally married are married for the life of both of them, so that regardless of all circumstances, a third party may not be introduced into that relationship, whether by divorce and remarriage or by a adulterous fling or whatever the case may be. This ordinance is for life between one man and one woman. And I even have to include that seemingly obvious aspect of marriage into my definition. Churches are yielding to the pressures of the ungodly culture and defining or allowing the definition of marriage so that it's between one a man and a man and a, between a woman and a woman. That possibility, I would say that iniquity, is ruled out by the fact that when God instituted his institution of marriage, he instituted it between one man and one woman, not between two males or between two females. So we answer all the questions, and I intend to do that today in light of this aspect of the definition of marriage, a divine ordinance between one male and one female for life. That could be, too, what the questioner is is concerned about compromise comes when that is not established because of the emotions and the hard circumstances so if we have that down and everyone is aware of that in the church then compromise is harder to do the church of course will inevitably face difficulties and questions over the uh, over the subject of marriage and all things related to it and one of the well the key thing for the church is to always go back to God's word what does God's word say about it and the only way to know what God's word says about things is to to know it to read it to search the scriptures and to always refer back to them you can't uh, do things based on people's feelings based on what you personally think is the most right thing it always comes back to God's word what is What does that teach us? What does that tell us? And that, of course, will be our guide as individuals and as churches. Here's the next question as follows. How, according to scripture, are we to view an individual who married a divorcee? Then upon understanding that this was adultery, divorce this person. Was this individual ever married in God's eyes? This is one of the difficult circumstances that trouble faithfulness by the church and by professing believers to the word of God concerning marriage. The first difficulty is the analysis of the relationship of an individual who married a divorcee. The question is, was that a valid marriage? Protestant Reformed churches faced this issue at a synod some years ago. And the answer to this difficult question is that the marriage of one who has not been married before to a divorcee is a valid marriage by virtue of the fact that marriage is a civil ordinance. Marriage is not an ecclesiastical ordinance, but a civil ordinance. I mean by that, God instituted marriage before ever there was a church. He instituted marriage in Genesis 2, and the church began really with the promise of Christ in Genesis 3.15. So marriage is a civil institution an institution that is valid in the state and not valid only by virtue of its ecclesiastical connection. Therefore, the marriage of a believer and a divorcee is a genuine marriage by virtue of its being a civil ordinance and a civil institution. It is an adulterous relationship, as the Bible clearly teaches in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 and Luke 16 and Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 7, by virtue of the fact that that divorcee has been married before and is entering into a 
marital relationship with another than her original husband. So the marriage of a believer, marriage of anyone to a divorcee is an adulterous marriage, but it is a marriage in the sense that it is a civil institution and a civil ordinance. And I can prove that from several passages of Scripture. I'll take one which is in harmony with the rest out of Mark 10. Jesus said if man puts away his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. And if she marries another, she commits adultery. Now what's significant there is that Jesus says that a man who divorces his wife and takes another woman, he marries her. He had an original marriage, but when he takes his second woman as his wife, he marries her. There's some validity to that relationship. It's not the same as a man's going to a whorehouse and having sex with a whore. Under some legal authority, he takes her, the second woman now, the divorcee, as his wife. So it's a marriage in the sense of it's being a civilly ordained manifestation of the institution of marriage. Mark 10 calls it marriage. He divorces his wife and marries another. But it's an adulterous marriage. So in that sense, it's illegitimate and under the wrath of God. It's civilly valid, and that has some significance because God has ordained the civil government. It's a genuine marriage, but it's an adulterous marriage. That's how one is to view the marital relationship between a divorcee and an unmarried person. That seems to be what was established with the synodical decision of the Protestant Reformed Churches uh, back in the 1980s. That was exactly the situation confronting the synod of the Protestant Reformed Churches in the 1980s. A man who had been married before, but who married a divorcee, left that divorcee, or she left him, whatever the case may be, and wanted to marry a previously unmarried woman. And his argument was the first marriage was invalid, biblically, and therefore he had the right to marry, as it were, for the first time. And the decision of the Synod of the Protestant Reformed Churches was what I basically described a moment ago. The Synod recognized that his original marriage was an adulterous union, but because of the fact that marriage is a civil institution, there was validity in the civil sphere to that original marital relationship, and therefore he was not permitted to remarry. So we recognize that the marriage of a divorced person and an unmarried person is sinful, is adulterous, but it still is a marriage by virtue of the fact that marriage is a civil institution which God has instituted also. So recognizing the state's authority and that the state's authority is valid in that sphere, what are we to say about marriage between, now the state is saying that it's a marriage between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. With regard to the state's approval of the union of a man and a man as a marriage, the state has no authority to decree that because marriages being between a male and a female is a law of nature itself, as Paul insists in Romans chapter 1. And the state has no authority to violate or contradict natural law. It would be the same as if the state pretty soon, which is not beyond the realm of possibility, would decree the legitimacy of the marriage of a human with an animal. I wouldn't be surprised that some Hollywood starlets or stars have already gone in that direction or tried to go in that direction. But it's a natural law that marriage is between two humans, and therefore what the state decrees in that regard is of no binding authority to a Christian. Natural law establishes that marriage is between two humans. So then, if that case comes up, 
if a man recognizes that he was wrong in marrying another man, is he free to marry a woman when after he repents? Well, how does the church deal with that in the future? Here we fall back upon the basic definition of marriage. It's between one male and a female. And therefore, I would answer that if the church ever faced the problem that a man who had previously been married, so-called, to another man would be justified by the church in his position that he had never been married before. He had a sexual union with another man, but he could not have been married to that man by virtue of the natural law established by God that marriage in any sense whatsoever is between a male and a female. But here's one of the hard matters for the church today that has to be answered in light of the basic definition. Divine ordinance of a unique relationship between one male and one female. In the light of that definition, we'd have to answer your hard question, I think. And the church must now be testifying to that before the practical issue comes up in her fellowship. And as she has opportunity, she must be preaching, teaching, and witnessing to the churches and to the ungodly world that the homosexual movement is sinful in the sense of being unnatural, as well as against the law of God, and that there can be, notice I didn't say may, may be, there can be no marriage between two of the same sex. Whatever the relationship is, it's not a marriage, not in the sense of being biblically grounded, not in the sense of having any lawfulness in civil society. With regards to homosexuality then, there are some people, some churches, some denominations that, well, they question whether or not it is a sin in the first place. Scripture is quite clear on this. It's not simply that Scripture says that uh, marriage is between one man and one woman and leaves it at that. There are plenty of other passages in Scripture which speak to homosexuality. Is there anything that you would, any kind of texts that you would like to refer to with, with, with regards to that to prove from Scripture that homosexuality is actually a sin? There are in the epistles specific mention of sexual relations between two men or two women as shameful and condemned by the Word of God. The fundamental passage, though, condemning homosexual relationships and much more condemning homosexual so-called marriage is Romans chapter 1. In any discussion of homosexuality, Romans 1 must come to the fore. And there, the striking thing is that homosexuality is not only perversity on the part of the humans who engage in it, but homosexuality is God's own judgment upon societies that have willfully held the truth of him under. So such an evil is it that it's God's punishment of an apostate society that is about at the end of its tether for their wickedness of rejecting him and rejecting the good news of the gospel. God punishes a society with the prevalence of homosexuality, and that's how we should see developments in the United States of America. This country is guilty of so despising and rejecting the word of God that God punishes society with the homosexual mentality and inclination and approval. So that is Romans 1, verse 18, speaks of the unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, and then God's judgment in verse 24, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, and so on. That's the passage. Paul prefaces that searing judgment with the truth that the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ is the only way 
to possess righteousness before God. So homosexuality is God's judgment upon a society for rejecting the gospel of grace. That too is what Western society is guilty of. The gospel has been in Western society. I'm talking especially about Europe and the United States. Clearly and boldly, Western society has rejected it under all kinds of influences and the result is God's judgment upon them of giving them over to that shameful behavior of homosexuality. Now that's not to say that no Christian may ever be inclined to that. We have a nature that's inclined to all kinds of enormities and wickedness. But the Christian has grace to hold that sin under and not to yield to it and to live according to it. Grace delivers us from that also. God's grace is always sufficient. Obviously, lots of temptations which we experience in life and emotions can be strong and all the rest of it. But we can always look back to Christ and we can always see that he has justified us and also sanctified us so that we are able to live a holy life and that we are able to live for him, putting away those sins. Amen. You mentioned, too, the church witnessing to these things. Christians in the United States do not experience persecution at this time, but I'm struck by the fact that it's when these issues of life and sins of life are are brought out that especially there is hatred shown. Whereas if we testify that God is sovereign and he has particular grace, there is not near the animosity. So from that point of view, the, the churches of today in the United States, they have been compromising and maybe that's part of the reason is because there's a fear of uh, persecution. I would not at all be surprised that the world of the ungodly, if and when they discover the stand of the Protestant Reformed churches against homosexuality and against homosexual marriages, would institute persecution on the Protestant Reformed churches. Court cases that condemn us for bigotry and fine us for our stand. In fact, I've thought in the past, up till the present time, that one of our defenses, strangely enough, has been the opposition of the Roman Catholic Church to homosexuality. It's one thing to take on the small denomination of churches known as the Protestant Reformed Churches. It's another thing to take on Rome. But of late, I've noticed that the present Pope, anyway, is quite favorable to the approval of homosexual relationships, caving into the culture. And if Rome gets out of our way, that's going to make it all the more dangerous for us. The motto of the culture seems to be love and tolerate. Those seem to be two very popular words that they'll use when you talk about the subject of LGBT in a negative uh, sense. As we know the scriptures and we know the Bible, we know that love is not putting up with somebody's sin and, and turning a blind eye to it, of course, and it is pointing out that sin, pointing them to Christ and urgent of telling them the need to repent of their sin. I think that's an important thing as well, is understanding what love truly is. When the world tells you to love and tolerate, know truly what that love is and what it should show in our lives. Yeah, toleration of sin, but no toleration for the holiness of Christ. I'm struck by that too, that John the Baptist was killed for this stand. He preached repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. They tolerated that. I think that's applicable to the subject, an example of what the stand for the truth of marriage costs. The verse that comes to mind for me right now is that the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory which is to come. And though there may be you know, the urge to conform to the world and to agree with what the world says, 
there there will be suffering there will be tribulation for that we know that in the end times that will happen but when we look forward to the life that is to come we can see that the the sufferings which we may experience in this life are really not to be compared okay next question if it, if a person is separated from an abusive spouse would it be legal in the eyes of god for them to get a civil divorce from the state to protect them from financial abuse if they profess publicly that they are still married in the eyes of god that's another question concerning the practical application of the biblical teaching about marriage and divorce and a practical application with its difficulties. In the first place, I would like to establish that when there is that situation of an abusive spouse that causes separation between that abusive spouse and his wife, the fault, the blame for the separation is on the part of the abusive spouse. The abused woman does not leave. I think it's important to use that statement. She does not leave, but the abusive spouse drives her out that even the fault of the separation is not the, the fault of the abused woman, but the fault of the abusive husband. But in the second place, there's only one biblical ground for divorce, and that biblical ground is the adultery of one's mate, so that abuse is not a ground for divorce. But because the separation is not the fault of the woman, but the fault of the man, the separation is legitimate. He drives her out by his abuse and by threatening her physical welfare. But even that severe situation is not ground for divorce. There is, in civil society, and according to the judgment of the civil authorities, such a thing as a legal separation, which satisfies, at least for a while, the concerns of this questioner. That legal separation prevents the abusive husband from getting to her any further, having any contact with her, and also includes his financial support of her, so that the solution to the problem here is separation with the approval of the state that affords her protection and support. The trouble is, I haven't checked this out myself, but as I've heard from others, that the state does not recognize a continuous legal separation. There comes a point at which the state basically says either divorce him or we're done with the matter then things really become difficult. But the fact remains that abuse is not a biblical ground for divorce. Under no circumstances other than the man's adultery may she divorce him, not even to solve her practical problems as brought up in the question. So another question from a listener. A person is on a drunken fling in Vegas and gets married on a whim for one night in a little white chapel. The next morning they get divorced. They repent of their sin. Are they still free to marry a godly spouse or are they now legally married in the eyes of God? Cutting to the chase, they are legally married. And as legally married, they are married in the judgment of God. They're married foolishly. They're married disastrously for both of them. They're married sinfully as far as their circumstances are concerned. But if an authority of the civil state married them, and both of them were privy to that decision, they're legally married. Now they're in for big trouble, which is a warning not to have a drunken fling with another woman or a man, and not to get married in Las Vegas. If you answer that question differently than I did, it's evident what the implications of that will be down the line for the church. Suppose the church says about a marriage like that, you know you're not really married, we don't pay any attention to the judgment of the person in Las Vegas who married you, you may marry again. How that opens the door to all kinds of similar situations. Las Vegas is not the main thing. 
the drunkenness and the one-night stand are the main things. There's going to be the real possibility that couples come to the church and say, we married when we were drunken. It was really not serious. It was a drunken fling. And even though we've been married for a week or two or a year or two, now we've decided that that was no genuine marriage and we want the church to decide that we may marry again. It opens the door to all kinds of similar situations. But our definition of marriage has to solve the problem for the church. An authorized individual of the state married the two, a man and a woman, and that marriage, wretched as it is, is a divine institution. They abused that divine institution, but they did use it also, and therefore the church has to regard that union as a genuine marriage which does not permit divorce and remarriage. Hopefully that's clear for our listeners as to how the Bible views this type of scenario. So moving on to our next question. One aspect not talked about is the dangers of pornography in marriage and outside of marriage. How does pornography twist God's intention of sex within marriage and how does it affect the unmarried person struggling with this? Why is it that Christians can struggle with this sin when they have the Holy Spirit? And what can be done by those struggling to overcome this sin? Pornography is a genuine evil in the church among those who confess to be the disciples of Jesus Christ and it's not limited to young unmarried men. It's also a genuine threat, a severe threat to adult and to men who are married and to a degree I understand also to women who are married. It is a perversion of the gift of sex. It's the violation of the rule of God that there be sex only within marriage and it affects marriage adversely. It also is an evil in that it leads to other sins, particularly adultery with women, men too, who are not the mates of the one addicted to pornography, breaks up marriages, violates other people's marriage union, and is demonic filth in the life of the child of God if he yields to it. How does this happen? It happens because we have a corrupt nature which is as filthy and defiled as the nature of the wicked world out there. Adding to it is the prevalence of the disease, spiritual disease in society. The internet especially is an agent of this evil and we yield to our corrupt nature, its offer of pleasures and wicked satisfactions and as we yield to it, it becomes stronger and stronger in the life of the child of God until for a time it overwhelms the Spirit of Christ within us. But also in that regard, the Spirit withdraws His saving, purifying influence the more we willingly do this evil. We drive, so to speak, the Holy Spirit's influence into the background in our life. The solution is a solution to all of the sinful temptations in our life. We get down on our knees and confess the sin, a violation of the seventh commandment, because Jesus said, whoever looks after a woman to lust after her commits adultery with her in his heart. So even if the pornography doesn't lead to any physical action, it still is violation of the seventh commandment. We get down on our knees and confess our sin and beseech the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ to cleanse us and give us the victory. And as was pointed out earlier, powerful as this addiction yielding to the lust of adultery may be, the power of the risen Christ is greater than the power of sin, and there is salvation in the sense of deliverance from this evil for the penitent child of God. 
I have had men say who've been discovered in this sin because it was ruining their marriage. God gave them a wife, beautiful mate, with whom sex is not only legitimate, but great pleasure. Talked to and counseled men who have said, I can't break with it. And I responded, that's unbelief. You don't say can't as a Christian when it comes to resistance to temptation. Christ is more powerful than every addiction, and you must trust in Jesus Christ that he will deliver you. But Christ uses means, and a man who is seriously under the power of pornography and who is serious about repentance may take such action as this, that he arranges with the minister to meet with the minister or another member of the church every week or every month and discuss whether he's having the victory in this warfare against pornography. He needs help from the minister or an elder or some available member of the congregation because there's no minimizing the strength and power of this evil, just as is the case, for example, with drunkenness on the part of a child of God who has come under the power of liquor. Don't minimize the strength of this evil and temptation. That's part of the judgment of God, even upon a child of God, is it not? Similar to drunkenness, you become a slave so much so that you cannot touch it again. Drug addiction is the same kind of thing. You mention that the Holy Spirit withdraws. That's helpful. We know from the scripture that the spirit within us wars against the flesh. And that's a powerful warfare of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in us. So it's not because it's a lack of power, but it's part of the judgment of impenitence. There are prayers in the New Testament. They will be familiar to you and to our audience. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That's a prayer raised by someone who has fallen into deep sin or who is under the power of sin to some degree, recognizing that he lacks the experience and power of the Holy Spirit as he used to enjoy it. And that in his battle with sin, what he needs more than anything else is the powerful presence and working in his life of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. But it indicates, too, that when we willingly yield ourselves to some sin, whatever that sin may be now, whether drunkenness, pornography, or envy of a neighbor, the effect, the judgment, is that God begins to withdraw the powerful, comforting, blessed experience of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that he will take that Holy Spirit away from us entirely so that we fall back into a condition of total depravity, and that's all, to a lost condition, Once God gives the Holy Spirit, he maintains that Holy Spirit, but the effects and powerful workings of the Spirit can be jeopardized. That's desperately serious and makes the child of God miserable, utterly miserable. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I think it's followed in one case by restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. If we're losing the experience of the joy of salvation, there's nothing worse for us. If one is struggling with this sin as well, you cannot simply say that, oh, it's okay, God will forgive me. But that is not the attitude of a Christian, of course. And we seek to live a holy life to our God out of thankfulness for what he has done for us. When the child of God comes to his senses with regard to that sin and others, he cries out to himself and to God, I'm a slave of sin again. That's utterly deplorable to the child of God, to the believer. I'm not I can't be content with being a slave to any iniquity. That's partly the working of the Spirit that occasions him to cry out, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. 
But I don't want to overlook either in answering this question that the preaching must address this. The people of God have a great warfare in the year 2024, not just the young men either. And one aspect of that warfare of the devil against us is the temptation to pornography. And the preaching must address that sharply, bluntly, clearly. What it is, in reality, a form of fornication, and it's a slavery, that no child of God may come under the power, and what the way of salvation is for those who find themselves in that slavery. The preaching is the power of God unto salvation in delivering us from this sin too. I remember it being pointed out once that with pornography, Satan is destroying marriages even before two actually become married. That's an astute observation. For one thing, the pornographer, the man addicted to pornography, looks at his wife, even in the sexual relationship, as a thing to please him. The biblical view of sex is giving. The man gives to his wife and the woman gives to her husband in the sexual act and relationship. And pornography is taking. Spread that observation around to ministers. Yes, I'd like to say for any of our listeners who are struggling with any anything like this, with pornography or any other sinful desires to get help with regards to it. Plenty of young men in the church who have had these issues and it's very sorrowful to see this. And out of love for your neighbor, you do not want to see them walking in sin impenitently and you want them to get help. A close friend at church, a minister, an elder, and look to Christ. There's always forgiveness in him. Professor had just mentioned that that's a type of adultery or fornication. Is pornography a reason for divorce? To my mind, that hard question is one of the difficult practical questions that we face in this session. I can see that a case could be made for that. My husband, because it's usually the male, my husband is addicted to pornography. He has no interest even in me as his mate. It's spoiling our marriage. That argument has power. But falling back on our biblical definition, I don't believe that pornography is a ground for divorce. Marriage is the union, the divine ordinance of a union between one man and one woman. And fornication or adultery is the actual physical relationship of a man with someone who is not his wife or of a woman who is not with a man who is not her husband. The Bible certainly has that in view when it speaks of fornication as the one ground for divorce. And again, if the church opens up the door to a divorce by regarding pornography as a ground, that leads to all kinds of consequences that we would not approve of. Suppose a woman says, my husband's thoughts, apart from actual pornography, my husband's thoughts are on other women. Would we recognize that as a ground for divorce? Probably everybody in the church could get divorced on that ground. So I think we should regard pornography as a corruption of marital purity, but it's not the fornication or adultery that the Bible has in mind when it gives adultery as the one ground for divorce. I regard these interviews Altogether, apart from my being involved in them, I regard these interviews as important witness on the part of the Hope Church and the Hope Evangelism Committee. The church busies itself nowadays with a lot of incidental matters that really are unimportant and that don't bear on the life of the people of God. Climate change would be an example that comes to mind. But with regard to this subject of marriage, you have a subject that's of the utmost importance to the gospel of Jesus Christ inasmuch as marriage is the symbol of the relationship of Christ and the church. 
that ought to be of the greatest importance to all Christians. What our stand is with regard to marriage is what our stand is with regard to the relationship of Christ and the church. If we may divorce and remarry, then Christ may divorce and remarry also. I'm referring to the truth taught in Ephesians 5. Marriage is the symbol of the love of Christ for the church and of the submission of the church to Jesus Christ. What the stand of the church may be regarding divorce and remarriage will also be, if it is not already, the church's doctrine of the relationship of Christ and the church. So tight is the connection between marriage and the covenant that the church that holds the permissibility of divorce and remarriage also necessarily teaches that the covenant of God with his people in Jesus Christ is breakable. And that is deadly serious theological gospel error. That the basis of everything regarding salvation is that God has made his covenant with his elect church in Jesus Christ and the members of that elect church and that that covenant of God with his people cannot be broken. In the Old Testament, once or twice in Jeremiah, we read that God divorced Israel because of its wickedness. But he did not remarry. And he, in fact, took back, undid the divorce, so to speak, in the way of Israel's repentance. God does not divorce and remarry his church. I'm thankful for that, because otherwise I'm lost. Otherwise, God is dishonored. If he can't maintain his own marriage, what must he amount to? So that's the seriousness of the discussion we've been having the last weeks. Marriage ought to make this important to all who hear it, and the meaning of marriage and the covenant of God ought to make it even more important to everybody who hears this tape. It's nice to end on God's unbreakable bond of marriage with his bride. Meditating on that is a power in the child of God's life and in the life of the church regarding this. With that, we would like to say thank you to you, Professor Engelsmith, for taking your time once again. And thank you to our listeners for listening. At the start, we also mentioned about a pamphlet uh, that we are offering for free for those who contact us at hoperwc at gmail.com. Please contact us and we will do our best to get you one of those copies. And if you do still have any uh, questions, do get those questions in. Though we may not record them necessarily, we will get those questions answered for you. We could get them to Professor Engelsma. I'm sure uh, he'd be willing to take a little bit of time to type up a response or something along those lines. So, yeah, thanks again to our listeners for listening. Uh, thank you, Jeff, for hosting with me. And thank you, Professor Engelsma, for your time. And until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode. We have thoroughly enjoyed recording this series and would love to hear what topics you would like to listen to next. Please contact us with any comments, questions or concerns at hoperwc at gmail.com. It is our prayer that you have been edified by this series.